Well, let's take a few moments here this morning and talk about what's going on in our culture. We'll spend a few minutes here from the standpoint of, of psychology and from things that I've learned from counseling as well as theology, what scripture says, and discussing the, you know, what's going on in our culture with people's concerns about uh, the virus. And then we're going to move on to discussing the, the meaning of Lent and in all things that Christ might be that focus. And anything I share here is not to in any way take away that some people have real concerns. There are people out there there with health concerns and have to be especially cautious. So be cautious, but let's look at something else maybe to help us understand why people are responding the way that they are responding. A couple years ago, uh, Monica and I, we worked on the pipeline. And for a while, about two months, I was in the Sandusky area working on the pipeline. There were roughly five major companies that were a part of the project. There were other companies involved. Five major ones. Monica and I worked for the second largest one. These companies came from different states. One was actually from Canada. So you have people from different cultures, different backgrounds, different companies. They didn't get along very well. In fact, some of them got along very, very badly. It was a $2.5 billion project. Each company wanted a bigger piece of the pie. And if they could make another company look bad, they would certainly do that. And so the people from different companies got along very, very poorly. And I would go to meetings and they might argue. They would insult each other. They'd be angry. They'd be yelling at each other, all because they worked for different companies. And it got so bad in the Sandusky area that they came up with a, a really silly solution. And the companies weren't allowed to talk to each other. Even though all the employees were working on this project, if you worked for a different company, you couldn't talk to somebody from a different company. In fact, they might even say to you, hey, you can't talk to me. You work for company X. So here was the, the silly solution. And I give this as an illustration of what people do and things that don't make sense that they may do and there's no logic behind it but people do things often that are very very curious and so what they came up with is these companies work together and one was in charge of trucking one was in charge of all the material the steel and the the machinery and another was in charge of the equipment you know forklifts and cranes you literally have a truck sitting there and a few feet over, there was all the stuff to be shipped, crates, steel. And then a few feet away, there was a man sitting there on a forklift, all three different companies. And you'd have to call somebody two miles away in an office and say, listen, the truck's ready to be loaded. Can you ask John Doe on the forklift if he can put this on the truck? He'd say, sure. You hang up your phone. John Doe, two feet away on a forklift. His phone rang, he picked it up, he said, I'll take care of it, hung up his phone, and then he would uh, fire up the forklift and, and put the steel on the truck. So again, the idea here is that people often do things that simply do not make sense. And we're seeing a lot of that here at this time, and it's a lot of it based upon what we call social proof. And again, social proof is when people don't know what to do, and especially if they're anxious, they will simply do what they see other people doing, even again, if it makes no logical sense. So for instance, people are clearing out the, the toilet paper in the stores. There's nobody from the CDC that has suggested that there's a need to stock up on toilet paper. Nobody in the government has suggested this. So why is it that people are doing it? Well, a couple reasons. One is social proof. Again, if I don't know what to do, I'll do what I see others doing. Somebody else bought toilet paper, 
then I'll do the same thing, and you repeat that cycle. A couple more reasons that this is happening. Many of you, like me, probably saw this illustration in your economics class. It's from William Shakespeare, his play, Richard III, from 1592, and the famous line there of King Richard, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. So, was a horse really worth the kingdom? Of course not. What happened though is Richard III, his horse died, and he needed a horse to go to battle. He believed there were no more horses in the land, and so he said, I'll give my kingdom for a horse. In economics, we call this scarcity. When something is scarce, suddenly its value increases on a massive scale. It's that idea of this is the one thing I must have, and if it costs me my kingdom to get that horse, or if it costs me a lot of extra money to get toilet paper, which is now scarce, then people pay for that. You remember we've talked many times, the, the first principle of leadership, whether you're talking about leading to influence other people or self-leadership, is to see things as they are, but not worse than they are. And people tend to make things you know, worse than they really are. And as we've said many times, there are needs, six needs specifically, that we all have. And people will meet those needs, even if what they have to do is simply illogical. That first need, certainty, then there's variety, love, significance, growth, and then contribution. But that first need certainty is what you're seeing now. The idea that if I'm uncertain, I need to find something to make me feel certain or comfortable. And so if buying toilet paper makes me feel better, it's not logical, but I'll do it. Again, it meets that need for certainty. I've counseled people that cut themselves. And for people that are cutters, they will share with you that what's taking place when they do that in their mind, they're very anxious, thoughts are racing, they feel out of control, they need certainty. So they'll take something sharp and they'll cut their arm, they'll cut their leg. It causes pain and that pain snaps them into the moment. The racing thoughts stop. And they'll say, it's a way I can control something. If I feel out of control, I can take control because I can cause myself pain. And suddenly that brings me into the moment. Again, there's nothing logical about some behaviors, but they make sense when we understand how people respond to social proof, the need for certainty, when there's the idea of scarcity. As we've said many times before, emotions are faster than thoughts. And so when we look at things and say, this behavior does not line up with the facts, well, it's, it's not going to in many ways. Let's also look at the role of media just briefly. George Gerbner, psychologist did massive studies on the media years ago and he actually testified before congress he said this there's the perception that the world is more dangerous than it really is based on what's shown in mass media he'd go on to say you know people think crime is on the rise it's not it's decreasing you know natural disasters on the rise it's not you know your your risk of disease and illness things like that he said the the idea that it's getting Riskier, he said, is simply not. And when he testified before Congress, he said this, fearful people are more dependent, more easily manipulated and controlled, and more susceptible to deceptive, simple, strong, tough measures and hardline solutions. So again, what he's saying here is the media causes fear, and that fear makes people more easy to control. And so some solutions he came up with is to simply say, you know what, look, have your family take action if there's something that you find an issue 
that you feel strongly about. So find someone to help. You know, don't get caught up in fear. The way out of fear is to take action or to find something to be grateful for. Serve somebody else. Number two, get your news from sources that adhere closely to the highest journalistic standards. Uh, Three, balance your information with uplifting sources. We gather each Sunday to, to... you know, celebrate Christ, to increase our faith, to, to study scripture, for it to be that spiritual nourishment. Again, balance your information with uplifting sources. And number four, take a day a week off from any media. You know, what's interesting, and we've shared this before, but one minute of anger or fear depresses your immune system for six hours. One minute for six hours. Again, so you're compromising the very thing that you need to fight something like a virus when you get anxious, when you get fearful, when you get caught up in, in you know, the social proof. One minute of anger compromises your immune system for six hours. One minute of fear does the same thing. On the other side, one minute of gratitude can boost your immune system for 24 hours. That's why, again, the way out of fear, be grateful in the moment, find something to give thanks for. Again, it's not to downplay anybody that is taking a special caution because some people really need to. We quote Proverbs 4-7 often, wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. The idea, though, is to make sure that you're making decisions that are based in wisdom, not a knee-jerk reaction or based on fear itself. Let me share something from Luke chapter 21, verse 25 to 26. Jesus is telling the disciples, it's about 30 AD, he tells them at one point, Jerusalem will be destroyed. They can't comprehend this. He says the temple will be completely gone. It's the central part of their life. And he tells them it's going to happen. He didn't say when it would happen. We know, though, from history, it happened in 70 AD. And he says to them, you know, gives them some things to know so they'll be prepared when they see events unfolding. And so he says there's going to be some wars, rumors of wars. You'll see some things happening around Jerusalem. And then he says this, and there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, in the stars. And what he's saying there is there's going to be tremendous upheaval. And then he says there's going to be distress of the nations. And here's what we want to look at for a moment. And he says, and men's hearts will fail them from fear. What does he go on to say to the disciples? He says, though, for you, don't be afraid. Take courage. Be at peace. Why do men's hearts fail them? Simple, because they do not know Christ. But for those that know him, he says, you know what? Faith speaks differently than fear. Faith lives differently than fear. Men's hearts fail them from fear when things are uncertain. He says, but if you are his disciple, that won't happen for you. Why? Because all throughout Scripture, everything is pointing to us to be able to put our complete trust in Christ. If you look at just, for instance, the book, the book of Isaiah tells us 24 prophecies that will be fulfilled by the Messiah. Why does Isaiah share that? So that when we see the one who fulfills those, we can stop and say, that's the one I will put my trust in. There's about 300 prophecies throughout all the prophets. Isaiah has a total of 24, many of those in Isaiah 53, such as that Jesus will be disfigured, he'll be beaten, he'll be pierced, he'll be rejected. He will 
suffer for sin. He'll be, you know, buried with a criminal. All these things unfold just as Isaiah was told they would in the life of Jesus for the specific reason that we can then say the one who fulfilled that is the one we can trust with our entire life, our eternity. You know, I love this statement here about John Witherspoon. He's one of the founding fathers. He was a minister, president of the College of New Jersey, signed the Declaration of Independence. And when he died, John Adams, the second president of the United States, said this about John Witherspoon. He was a true son of liberty, but first he was a son of the cross. You know, as we're moving through this time in history, moving through this Lenten season, what a great thing to be said uh, about anybody that he is a son of the cross or she is a daughter of the cross. That that would be the highlight of how we are known. And if that's true for you to, to celebrate that, if it's not true for you yet, that you could say, you know what, I want that to be my life. I want to be a son of the cross, a daughter of the cross, that Christ be preeminent in my life. Again, not caught up in the upheavals, the social proof, the anxieties, but to say, my heart doesn't fail from fear because I know my commitment and trust is in the one who fulfills all things. You know, this month, March 6th, was the anniversary of the fall of the Alamo, which has always been an important metaphor in our culture for people overcoming or standing up to impossible odds. And there at the Alamo, 1836, 189 men faced 4,000 men of the army of Santa Ana. And in the Alamo were men like Jim Bowie, who's well known today because, again, he was a legendary frontiersman, or Davy Crockett, who was one of the most popular people ever in our country. He was a congressman, also a frontiersman. And another man that was in the Alamo was Will Travis, 26 years old, a father and a husband. And these men could have left the Alamo, and they said, we're going to stay even though we know if we stay, it'll cost our lives. And so he wrote a letter to be found when the battle was over. Will Travis wrote this, Fellow citizens and compatriots, I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana. The enemy has demanded a surrender. I shall never surrender or retreat. And then he makes those immortal words that we know when he states, Victory or death. Underneath that, though, he wrote, P.S., the Lord is on our side. That's why the Alamo is such a, a powerful metaphor, standing up against all odds, you know, standing up against the impossible and being able to say, you know what, it's going to be victory or death, but you know what, P.S., the Lord is on our side. And so that is what we rest in moment to moment, again, in a culture where people are facing uncertainty to be the certain ones and say, you know what, I'm a son of the cross or a daughter of the cross. And you know what, the Lord is on our side. Let's look at John chapter six briefly. John chapter six, Jesus has multiplied the fish, the loaves, fed thousands of people. And in verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. The people wanted him to, to multiply loaves again, and he said, there's no reason. You've already seen that miracle, and you're hungry again. I'll give you bread that will satisfy you. He is that bread of life. To which Max Lucado writes, consider how bread is made. Think about the process. Wheat grows in a field. It's cut down, winnowed, ground to flour. 
passes through the fire of the oven, each step is essential. Eliminate the plant, no wheat. Eliminate the winnowing, no flour. Eliminate the fire, no product. Now consider Jesus. He grew up, Isaiah says, a small plant before the Lord. One of millions of boys on the planet, thousands in Israel, dozens in Nazareth. He was indistinguishable from the person down the street. Had you seen him as a youngster, you would not have thought he was the son of God. You might have thought him polite, courteous, diligent, but God on earth, not a chance. He was just a boy, one of hundreds. He was like a staff of wheat in the wheat field. But like wheat, he was cut down. Like chaff, he was pounded on and beaten. Isaiah says he was wounded for our transgressions. Like bread, he passed through the fire of God's anger, not because of his sin, but because of ours. As Isaiah declares, the Lord has put on him the punishment for all the evil we have done. Jesus experienced each part of the process of making bread, the growing, the pounding, the firing, just as each is necessary for regular bread, so also each was necessary for Christ to become the bread of life. In the 1800s, B.B. McKinney wrote this hymn. I am satisfied with Jesus. He's done so much for me. He suffered to redeem me. He died to set me free. I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied with Jesus. But the question comes to me as I think of Calvary. Is my master satisfied with me? You know, as we enter into knowing this bread of life more and more in this Lenten season, again, to stop and say, I want to be that son, that daughter of the cross, that he be my daily sustenance. We all want to see revival in our culture, in our own lives. And one of the most wonderful verses about that revival is Habakkuk 3.2. He was a contemporary of Isaiah 6.12 BC. Habakkuk wanted to see things change in his culture. He didn't like the unrest, the hurts, the fears he saw. And I, Habakkuk said this, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. And in our time, make them known. That we might be that same type of prayer. You know what, Lord, I, I read about you parting the Red Sea for Moses, delivering Israel out of Egypt, saving Joseph from the dungeon, saving the, the Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego from the fiery furnace. Would you repeat those things in our day and in our time, make them known? I know that Jesus can heal with a touch, with a word. Can we see those miracles in our life? Can you revive us? So, Lord, repeat in our day what you did before. In our day, make those miracles known. It starts, though, with each one of us committing to that. As D.L. Moody said, every great movement of God can be traced to a single praying, kneeling figure. It's a beautiful quote by Ruth Ward Heflin. She's sharing about seeing things bigger, seeing things maybe we don't in that quest to see revival. Ruth Ward Heflin writes, God's desire is to take us places we can't ask to be taken because we don't know they even exist. He wants to give us experiences that we could never request because we have never yet even dreamed of them. Maybe in this Lenten season, we'll begin to pray, God, could you open my eyes to see things that could be possible? Could you give me an idea of an experience that I could request, something that's not even entered my dreams that I could pray about? 
John 6, 38, after Jesus declared he's the bread of life, he was standing before a crowd. There were many unbelievers, many atheists. They were mocking, you know, God doesn't care. God doesn't exist. Whatever their statements were in criticizing him. And Jesus, John 6, 38, says this to those in that crowd. I have come down from heaven. I've come down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me. How far would Jesus go to get our attention? That's what he was trying to say to that crowd. Even though they mocked, they criticized. He said, let me tell you about the love of God. Let me tell you about the truth of life. I have come down from heaven. That's how far I'll go. Throughout the scriptures, whether it's a lost coin, a lost person, a lost sheep, he is that one who seeks to find. How far has he come for you, for me? The same thing. He's come down from heaven to do the will for which he was sent. That's how far he'll go. I love what is stated by uh, Joel Osteen, the story about David and Goliath. You know, he shared, you know, David never called Goliath a giant. First Samuel 17, when he gets there and there's this big giant and the people are frightened and they describe the size, David doesn't call him a giant. David said, who is this Philistine that should defy the armies of the living God? He didn't have fear. Again, faith speaks different than fear. And Goliath, he became David's promotion. And David recognized that things were going to change, and he was not afraid because he said, I'm a son of the cross. I know the one who can do the impossible. And he faced Goliath. Again, faith speaks different than fear. Faith recognizes that God opens doors that no man can shut. That God does things that we can't even imagine. And for those, again, who commit and say, I want to live my life as a a son of the cross, a daughter of the cross, I recognize he is the bread of life. I pray for personal revival, revival for a nation. Now's a great time to be able to stand with people that are anxious and say, listen, I understand you have concerns, but let me tell you about the one who said you don't have to have your heart fail with fear when you trust and believe in him. That's what happened to this man, David Yonggi Cho, South Korea. As a young man, he was dying of tuberculosis. He was crying out in bed in tremendous pain week after week after week. He began to cry out to the gods one by one to help him. He prayed, you know, Buddha to help him or the ancestors that they believe can help from the grave. Can you help me? Are there any gods out there? And David Yonggi Cho said he got to the point where here was his prayer. He said, if there is any God out there anywhere, I don't ask you to heal me. I just ask you to show me how to die. He was ready to give up. He did not even want to live any longer. Can you just let me die? Three hours after he prayed that prayer, a young woman visiting South Korea was walking down the street and she would share, she passed this house and had an overwhelming, unexplainable just pull to this house. And she felt this love flowing She went and knocked on the door. David's mom answered, and this lady said, Listen, you don't know me. I just wanted to knock on your door and ask, Is there something that I could pray for, for you or your family? The mom began to weep, and she said, My son, he's dying. This lady went in and prayed for David Yonggi Cho. She told him about Christ. He believed what she said. He gave his life to the Messiah. He was healed. Again, you may not know David Yonggi Cho. I've read some of his books. They're, they're just uh, powerful, speaking about faith. 
David Yonggi Cho, once he was healed, he became a minister, and he started a church in South Korea. And if we can even kind of picture this, largest church in history, largest church by far in the world, you know, from this man, God has opened up doors. One million people are a part of this church in South Korea. Because again, he's come down from heaven to earth to change everything to speak life, to tell us that faith speaks different than fear, to call us to be a son of the cross, a daughter of the cross, to commit all things to him, to to pray in a different way because we know the bread of life and we don't hunger for regular bread any longer because we know the true daily bread that is Christ. And in him we simply say, you know what, I am satisfied. I am satisfied. I am satisfied with Jesus.